0: Connor, excited to have you here. We are looking forward to this one, a, a different kind of TBD episode, a preview of an event. So this is uh, not the normal TBD, so let's get it going. Hey, we don't have a title. No title. Well, I think it's preview. Preview, <laughs> that's it. Wow. Just the world.
1: worlds. worlds. Okay. Preview of the world.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let's go.
1: Hey there, Squash fans, and thanks for coming back to another episode of The Breakdown with myself, Connor Malley, and your co-host, Bill Buckingham and Paul Johnson, PJ Squash. We have a special episode for you today, and it's a little bit different format from what we normally do, but it's for a good reason. This week in Squash, it's the largest money event on the tour, and it's taking place out in Chicago. This is a million-dollar prize money event that is presented by the Walter family. For this preview, we talk about what the worlds means in the landscape of the sport. We dive into some of the recent controversy that took place out in Egypt. And of course, we go through the draws talking about what it will take for players to lift the championship trophy. A quick thank you again to our sponsor, Baya Sports. They are both Bill and mine's favorite squash shoe ever because they feel great and they look great. So go to BaiaSports.us. And check out their newest Force X. That's B-I-A-Sports.us. Thank you again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of The Breakdown with my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Johnson. Welcome back, guys. Thank you, Connor. What episode is this, Connor? Connor. I can't count past 10, so what are we up to now? I know we're past 10. Was it Denison University you went to? <laughs> we didn't do, you know, high high level math there. Right? Fair, fair enough. Fair or enough. I, I didn't, I
0: should it didn't. say. <laughs> it's fair enough. We are on episode 16, episode 16, a very, very special episode of TBD. Typically, we have a format we go through with ratings and rankings, and then we do an appendix. This is a little bit different because we have what many say is the biggest tournament in the world coming up in Chicago next week. And we wanted to do a preview of it. The 2021 World Squash Championship being held at the University Club of Chicago. So we are here to preview that in episode 15 of TBD. So very excited, very excited to have PJ. Welcome, PJ.
2: Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Connor. It's always a pleasure to have a good old chat with you guys and looking forward to this one. So before we get into the actual
1: the draw, which is why I know a lot of people here, sometimes I think it's helpful to provide that context of what this event means to the players, but also to like in the spectrum and the landscape of sport. So PJ, one of the questions we get asked is like, well, what's the difference between this event and the World Tour Finals?
2: World Championships for me is just just on a completely different scale. Obviously, at the end of this, you're crowned the World Champion. The World Series Finals is basically more of like a showcase event. It's an annual event that takes place and it goes out to the top eight men and the top eight women who have accumulated the most amount of points in all of the World Series events. The World Series events are the most premium and the biggest prize money events on the World Tour. It's a good payday for the players. It's a lot more relaxed than your typical World Series tournament. And it's more of an opportunity for the PSA to put out on display the top eight men and the top eight women that have obviously deserved and earned their places through the calendar year and got themselves into this kind of final spectacle. It's a bit of more of like an exhibition event, I would say. The matches are very fiercely competitive. But I think if you were to ask any of the players if they had a choice between becoming a World Series finals winner and the winner of a World Series event... I think the majority of them would head more towards the World Series event. Now, the, the World Championships, it's the pinnacle of our sport, really. It's the, the most iconic to become a world champion in any sport. an amazing achievement. But for me, this is the one tournament that actually took over from the British Open back in, the I think it was the 70s, where the British Open was Squash's numero uno and, and premium tournament. But then the World Championships came out and this kind of took that title to a whole different spectrum for me and I think again if you were to ask players who would compare the British Open what you would say is the Wimbledon of squash the, the world championships if they could choose between becoming a British Open champion which was renowned as the world championships back in the day or becoming a world champion the world championships would be that the most prestigious and the most sought after event on tour
0: So two questions. One is the scheduling of this COVID related. So is the reason that the PSA tour championships are following back to back with the world championships? uh, Because obviously that causes some confusion, just the scheduling right there. So is that COVID related or is it always, always scheduled like this?
2: Generally, the world championships would be a different time of the year. I remember when I was playing in the world series finals, it was always at the end of the season after the British open and historically, That would be around late May, early June time. But obviously with the calendars having to be rescheduled the way they have due to the COVID restrictions and thankfully Egypt has been superb in providing a platform and and a venue for so many of the the most recent events. It's purely because they've enabled the the tournaments to go ahead over there and the way the calendar has worked that the World Series finals and the World Championships are now so close together. That's not the norm.
0: Other question, last question on this is why the World Championships? I can't think of another professional sport that has a World Championship like this so basically it's just a north it's a tour event right i mean what's there's not really a big difference between this event and like an event that may have taken place in egypt at Blackball, like a platinum event right it's the same no. group of players for the most part it's like a major i understand that it's a major event so why call it a world championship as opposed to say the toc is not a world championship what what is the difference besides the prize money
2: i think it's just the prestige i i, I don't think there's any particular criteria that would separate it from your world series events, your tournament of champions, your, you know, your black balls and those kind of events. I I just think it's more a title that's given. I, I think a lot of it was to do with the scheduling bill back, you know, back when the world championships first came out, it was almost like the final event of the year where all the best players came together and battled it out to then be crowned the world champion at the end of the season. Right. There wasn't really any other particular reasoning behind it. It was just more the way that the tour was previously. A lot of the the Australians, the Pakistanis, the Egyptians and the the Brits would be travelling around the world tour and then eventually they would come back. The worlds would move around a little bit, but at the very end of the season, it was the one event that everybody geared and prepared towards and it was the final event of the season and it was where all the best players in the world competed and then... uh, was then crowned or called the, the world champs
0: right right that makes sense it just it just seems very odd to have a world championship of our sport in july that that's
2: I think it, a it, lot of it, again a lot of it is the scheduling and just the, the, the way that things have, uh, have happened
1: for so. sure well there is also in the landscape of of world titles there's also the the world teams and wasn't there there was a period of time when the world individuals and the world teams were hosted at, within the same uh, two weeks time frame isn't that correct
2: it was normally like a 16-day event connor I mean, brutal, brutal events they were, because you had your individuals, first of all, and then after the individuals, you would then have a, a one-day break, and then you would work your way into the the team events, and it was no surprise that a lot of the, tea, a lot of the, the players that did well in the individual events were generally the number ones of certain countries, and they really struggled to back up when you went into the world team events following because you had the massive come down and then you're trying to build yourself back up again and go back in and obviously being a higher ranked if you've done well in the in the individuals you then go in and you're playing against the number ones of other countries respectively so you're always coming up against a decent opponent even in your group stages and in your early knockout rounds so any of the, the players that as i said did well they they would struggle to back up but there, there were some performances that were just outstanding where you saw what the players had done in the individuals to then go and be such a, an integral part of the team event that was where you really sorted out the men from the boys
0: so before we jump into this year's championship just a look back at what happened in egypt i know that you and joey doing remote broadcasting of the event that happened Two weeks ago, now, and there was some. As always, um, <laughs> there's there's not a squat. There's not a squash event anymore if there's not a little controversy. And typically, that controversy surrounds one player. Some think he's great for the tour. Some people think that he's the worst thing to ever happen to squash. So we're talking about a, a, a young kid, um, Mustafa Asal, seated twelfth, I think, in this tournament. But either way, he ended up winning the championship, but not without controversy. Mostly in a uh, Semifinal final against Tarek Moman. So talk to me about what you think happened there, and then I'll follow up, and I'll follow up with this question now. You and Joey kind of got dragged into the controversy a bit from people on, online and, like, saying you guys were um, biased, you're biased reporters, and you guys actually lead, help lend to the controversy. So so just talk about that a little bit.
2: First things first, going back to the actual match, Tarek Moman made it quite clear that he wasn't, first of all, impressed with the behaviour of Mustafa Rassel throughout the match. There was also referencing, I may be wrong, to the refereeing. And then thirdly, to the commentary that Joey and I gave on that particular match. Now, as you've mentioned, there has been a a real cloud cast over Mustafa Rassel and and since he's come up onto the, the PSA World Tour. And... I would say that a lot of it has been—it's it, justified because when he first came out, he's obviously a big—he's a big lad, six two, six three, and he's he's physically very, very strong. We had similar problems when Omar Mossad first came onto the tour. I don't want you to to compare the two now. I'm talking about when Mossad first came out. He again was another big guy, and Mossad just wanted to do so well when he first came out onto the tour. At times, his physical presence overshadowed the quality of his squash and how well he was playing. And it was pure enthusiasm, exuberance, call it what you will, that he wanted to stamp his authority on the tour that at times may have got a little bit physical. And and early on in Mossad's career, he was labelled with that same kind of tag that we're seeing now with Mustafa Asal. Now, in some of the early events where I've seen Mustafa Asal, I would agree 100% with a lot of what the people are, uh, are saying, because it, he is using that physical strength and, uh, and that presence. At times, you can't even call it gamesmanship. It's a little bit more than that, and it is very physical and potentially very dangerous because he's such a big guy. If he, if he hurtles into somebody at the wrong angle, if he catches a knee in the wrong place, he could do some serious damage. That was early on. Going back now to the World Series Finals where he played against Tarek Moman. Obviously, this stigma has already been attached to Mustafa Sal, so people are already looking for it. It's a little bit like the trailing leg of Gregory Gautier or the movement off the ball at times by Marwan El Shibagi. People are already kind of looking for that straight away. And I feel that in this match in particular, what Tarek was referencing and what he was getting upset about didn't even happen. There were times when Tarek may play a a, a loose ball or a poor shot through the middle of the court. Mustafa Assal, well within his rights to take his space, would hit the ball into the open court. And the line that Tarek would have to take may be kind of close to or nearby Assal, who would literally just stand his ground. Now, Assal could have quite easily made himself a lot bigger, leant into the line of, of Tarek moment, and made that particular situation far worse. I just got a sense that Tarek was... Judging a sale on his previous record, not on the current situations that were taking place at the time, it completely did Tarek Moment's head in. You know, he made reference to to Joey's and my commentary but being biased, and this is something that happens very often with our commentary. You know, we're, we're not nobody, we're not perfect, but what the players have to also understand is we we are being paid and brought in to say it as we see it so if something's taking place i'm not going to i personally and i know joey's the same i'm not going to sit on the fence if somebody's leaving a leg or somebody's fishing or looking for trying to you know get some stroke advantage i will bring reference to it now joey and i we are the first to credit the players for their fantastic movement their speed their agility their technical prowess their court craft And we can go through an entire game praising the players and and complimenting them and and talking about all of their strengths. We may then make one comment, which possibly could be negative. Again, we will say it as we see it. So that's our opinion at the time. And that's the one thing that we'll get picked up on. So it's a very difficult position for Joey and I because I I personally can't just sit there and I'm not going to lie. If it's there and I see it, I'm going to talk about it. and some players are going to take umbrage to that and not agree. And, that, and that's entirely their opinion.
0: So interesting that, that Tarek commented on it so quickly after the match. Like when did Tarek hear the, hear the, hear the announcing? Did he go like and watch the match replay right away? Or did he get a call from Raneem? Like, like how did he know that you were calling the match like that is what I want to know. Cause he commented awful quickly afterwards about your commentating
2: i'm certainly not going to throw Reneem under the bus because i'm a massive ranim fan and no
0: no i i just wondering someone someone obviously talked to him because he didn't he couldn't have watched it
2: that's the thing somebody's obviously sat there that's in tarek's corner and has said to tarek you know straight away you need to listen to the commentary and he must have stuck his bag over his shoulder and watched it as soon as he got back to the hotel because you're right the message came out pretty quick after the event
0: Are you the first announcer ever to be accused of racism during a match of two players of the same race? (laughs) How do you do that? I
2: think we've made history there. I honestly have absolutely no idea. That's the furthest thing from our commentary. Never once have we made any remark or comment about racism. That is not in our repertoire. We love all the players on the tour for all their different reasons. The only thing where they could possibly get a little bit upset, and this, in my opinion, is a compliment. It's the dominance of one particular country right now, and that is Egypt, doing an unbelievable job of cleaning up the World Tour, whatever way you look at it. If you look at the rankings now, and they could win the World Team Championships with their B team. They're so strong in depth. All I'm saying, and this, is, I would say this about any sport. If you have one particular nation that dominates the sport, it's not particularly healthy for the sport. We want other countries to to challenge these, so so we get a bit of diversity and we get a bit of mixture and, and variety. It was misinterpreted that we were racist. In my opinion, It's just ridiculous.
0: And one last thing before I let Connor maybe jump in on this is the revisionist history of Tarek moment, I think it was a note. I think we might have been too long for a for a tweet, but it was it was a long a long semi resignation note. <laughs> totally paraphrasing because i don't have it in front of me like 360 of the 382 matches i've played on world tour have all been pleasant and clean to watch and i've never argued with the official dude i must have saw those 22 matches or whatever they were because every match i see you watch you argue with the official you're one of the biggest whiners on tour like literally one of the biggest whiners on tour not as physical because you're not that physically strong so you don't you don't do that kind of movement and things like that for sure but man Derek, Moman whines to the refs as much or more than any player on tour, and for him to make that statement like he is a some angel out there, anybody but Tarek moment, I mean come on, Tarek,
2: I hear what you're saying, and Tarek moment he has been a world champion, uh, I think he's still yeah he is world champion, current. yeah current now he's had such an amazing career, you know, hats off to Tarek because when he first came out. If, if somebody ever told you Tarek Moman was going to be top five in the world for the best part of five, I mean, coming, you know, he's up there now, probably more, even more. Five years or so, he's going to be world champion, one of the most frequent players in the semi-finals of these World Series. They, they would have laughed because of the style of play that he had. I just feel that Tarek at the moment, he's, there's a bit of frustration in there for some reason. It could be the pressures of being world champion. I'm not just signalling out Tarek now. This is something that I feel... It could be another conversation for another day. Too many players are whining at the referees. I feel there should be way less. No other sport do you have so much interaction between the players and the referees and in a derogatory manner. The referees need to be firmer with the players. We want it to be a relatively clean, free-flowing game I understand the refereeing at times it can be questionable and there's frustration for the players out there. I still don't think that gives them the right to abuse these referees who do it for very little money, by the way, and not have more penalties as a result of it. It can be really cleaned up. It just doesn't look great on TV when you have some, some of the, And it's all levels. I'm not just saying the pros. It's right through the, right through the board where I think the attitude of the players can can improve towards the referees.
0: The re- revisionism of, of, of this it also jumps to Asal, who obviously after the semi was being pilloried on the internet, like everyone calling him basically the worst thing ever to happen in the world of squash, of everything. He he was a pariah. He then plays Mohammed Al-Sharbagi they play a very gentlemanly clean match and now it's Mustafa Sal, he's going to be the savior of squash. This kid's really cleaned up his act in 24 hours and he was then the same people who were crushing him were giving him kudos. It was hilarious. It, it was the internet no, 101. The was uh,
2: unbelievable. Yeah, was.
0: I wish I could get that kind of, like, I, I'm an idiot. I mean, I know people hate me and I was wondering like one day, could I start being nice to people tomorrow and then people would, all the crap I've done to people, would that all be forgotten just like that? Like, like No, I
2: don't think you've got it in your bill, but no, no hard feelings.
0: <laughs> I don't think I have it in me either but I mean if I knew it was out there at least I'd be attempting it right I don't know
2: that's the irony if you look at the quality of the, the final Mustafa Sal he deserved to beat El Shibagi on the day I personally feel El Shibagi got the tactics wrong and after Shibagi won the first game a lot of people would have felt that he was going to steamroll through Mustafa Sal but I mean listen Joey and I we felt that we had a serious player on our hands when we first watched him commentate just technically He's, I mean, I love watching Mossad personally, but I think he's right up there with your likes, with, with your Mossads, with more agility and more speed and dynamic movement. There was a player many years ago, probably one of the greatest British players of all, or English players of all time, should I say, a guy called Del Harris. Del Harris was 6'1, 6'2. He was the golden boy of, of, of English squash. And his athleticism and his, just the way that he moved, For his size was unprecedented, and that's a similar kind of movement and strength and power of movement and agility that I'm seeing in Mustafa Sal that we saw in Del Harris maybe 20 years ago. And that compiled with growing up watching all the great Egyptian players post Barada, He's been watching what these guys are doing from a very early age, and now he's, he's certainly starting to create a few shockwaves on the World Tour, a real, real threat if he can get out there with his visa situation for the world uh, world champs
1: what you're bringing up it's kind of forecasting what we might be seeing in chicago and before we get into the draws i just also want to highlight that another reason why this is such a an amazing event on the tour these days is the fact that it's a million dollar prize money event which is the first time that we've seen this in our sport and any yeah. anytime that we get that kind of milestone is a big deal and so that is split up between 500000 for the men and 500000 for the, the
2: women. Just for the record though, Connor, this is the second time it's been a million dollar event, right? So the, the World Champs two years ago, was it 2018?
1: 2019. Yeah, you are correct. So the second time we're hosting this, you, you're correct. Do you know, off, Connor, off the top of your head, what the prize money cut is for the winner?
2: Yeah, 20%, 100 grand first prize.
0: 100 grand and is that is the biggest first prize in squash? Yeah, am I yeah, correct?
2: You the taxes to take out of that, but gen, generally, first prize for the uh, the World Series events is twenty percent.
0: A big prize to play for, for sure, for sure. There's, yeah, there's I mean, a... hundred
2: grand in what is it? Seven eight days there. That's kind of money you're running. In, so I you mean, know, it's a good yeah. Thing for the guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so so before we jump into the draws, and I'll let Connor take that over. I just want to say, PJ, and um, you will not be there. You will not be in Chicago. The last time this was in Chicago was the the world championships that took place and you and Joey did your Batman and Robin duo thing. that got a lot of publicity, uh, a lot of virality on the internet, but this time you won't be there. And I, I live my life on the message boards and on the Facebook groups. And there's a lot of talk about why not PJ and Joey, the most, the best two announcers in squash. And especially when they're together, there's no parallel between you guys and anyone else. You guys are the best. There's no question about that. Why aren't you going to Chicago if you don't mind uh, telling us?
2: Is that your opinion or the opinion of the people on the message boards, Bill? Because
0: I'm unbiased. So I I will say you, PJ, are my favorite announcer in squash. How's that?
2: Well, that's very much appreciated. No
0: problem. By a long way, too. I don't want to throw shade at whatever his other name, the other guy's name is, but by far, by far, by far. Jenny Duncaf, second, by the way.
2: Oh, I know. This commentary, as I've said to you before, is. Arguably the favourite part of my work career, if you want to call it that. It's an opportunity for me to be at the best events in the world, watching the best players in the world, on a tour that I was part of for 12 years as a player. And to sit there, again, I'm repeating myself, but you've got your best buddy sat there next to you and you're just sitting there having a chat and commentating on all of these great matches and these great players. So it doesn't really get any better than that from a satisfaction, an ex player satisfaction standpoint however I do understand a lot of the forums and a lot of what the people are saying we do want some variety as well it it is the world championships and in an ideal world with it being one of the biggest and most prestigious events you'd like to think that the so-called top commentary team would come in for that but I just did an event a couple of weeks ago with Joey at the Black Ball and also, with the, the financial situation that the PSA are in at the moment, in an ideal world, Bill, they would send five or six commentators out so we could rotate and have plenty of different combinations commentating on all the men's and the women's matches. But we don't have that luxury right now. So the commentary teams that we're going to have, we're just going to have three commentators. We're going to have Ashley and Blake, obviously taking care primarily of the ladies' side of the game. Then we're going to have Lee Drew, who's the lead for the most part of the ladies' events, also steps in and does some of the men's, and then obviously Joey himself. With Lee Drew being able to commentate on the men's, the women's as a lead, Lee's also very heavily involved with the PSA and liaising with the referees at all of these major events. He They have meetings every day, and Lee kind of takes charge of those, trying to you know get the refereeing up to as high standard as possible. So from a from a cost effective standpoint, simply it makes more sense to send Lee Drew over because he they can kill two birds with one stone. He's going to look after the referees and then he can look after the commentary as well. Whereas if I was to come along, on top of that, with the COVID restrictions, again it's another single room because all those all the, the commentators will be in separate rooms. Normally we used to share, so that would bring cost down. And with Lee having kind of two hats, he can split himself between the two gigs. So.
0: Makes sense. I know the internet won't be pleased with that answer because the internet doesn't understand finances uh, at all. It's it's more nope. like if it's if, if it's a money thing, get it get it done. I would have started a GoFundMe for you to get PJ to Chicago if I had had a little more advance notice. But since we didn't, we will enjoy bantering with you back and forth about this event.
1: You're looking at the draws here, PJ. Yeah, I do want to get a scouting report on Team USA. But when you're looking at this, who jumps to your mind as like the clear favorites to be lifting the trophy?
2: I'm probably going to get in trouble for being sexist now, but I feel as though that the ladies' event is a little bit more clear-cut. I, I feel as though the top four players in the world currently, and this we've also had this situation in the men's, just make that clear, the top four ladies in the world at the moment have a little bit of a gap between themselves and then the, the rest of the, the players on the world tour. We've got a few ladies breaking through, which is great to see, but I just feel that just looking through that draw... You've got the likes of Kami Serm. She's a veteran on the tour now, but so experienced and always seems to get up for the big events. Played very well in Cairo a couple of weeks ago. You've got Hania Hamami, who's had a terrific past 12 months and has not come out of nowhere, but she's now really starting to stamp her authority in the ladies' game. I feel, if it's not this year, it's just a matter of time before she claims her first world title. You've then got Noran Gohar, who did win the World Series finals, actually got one of her first wins over El, Sh- El Shabini in one of the matches in that particular event. She's found some good form, two-time major winner already. She won the US Open and the British Open in the same year. Let's not forget she's only just finished studying, so the shackles are off for her. She's going to be looking to have a good tournament. I personally am still struggling to see beyond El Shabini. I just think that... It wasn't her finest performance in Cairo, but whenever these events come around, she just seems to have that ornate ability to get herself up and produce her best squash when it's really required. I just really can't see anybody getting past those four players' that I've just mentioned. One possibility maybe as well to throw into the mix after a great World Series finals, apart from a semi-final match, would be Joel King. She's found some good form recently over the last couple of months as well. And she's obviously started to figure a few things out and has regained some of that form that we saw take her to the late stages of events a couple of years ago.
0: I agree with exactly what you're saying. This is this is the first I think world championship in quite a while that won't have El Walili and Elnor and Noral Taib in it, which definitely weakens the women's field. And to, not to use the word weakening because the women's game is as strong as ever. Besides King, do you see anyone else like a Perry? like a Sobi, anyone else possibly sneaking in? Tesney Evans always intrigues me. Before she got hurt, she seemed to be knocking on the door of that top four. She yeah. was make, making the semis. She made the semis of the U.S. Open. She's been injured and hasn't returned to form. But a- anyone along those lines you see possibly sneaking into the semifinal?
2: I certainly feel that Amanda Sobi, with some home advantage has got a terrific opportunity to have a, a good world. She has had some good performances over the last couple of events. I feel like Amanda's a player that needs a bit of continuity for her to get into a rhythm and and find a stride in in these particular tournaments. And, you know, two or three tournaments back to back for me would probably help her. So the timing of this world would certainly suit Amanda Sobey. I'm interested to see the young, uh, young girl from Malaysia, the, I won't try to pronounce the first name, but it's Supermanian. She had been doing some work with David Palmer and no doubt that would be very physical. She's obviously fleet footed and a, kind of reminiscent of Nicole David, really. So I'd like to see how she fares in this event. I haven't seen her for a little while. But as I said at the beginning, Bill, I, just the, the strength that we're seeing, and you said, it, you know, the ladies' game is as strong as it. I actually think it's stronger right now. I think this is the best level of squash. Unfortunately, we don't have Raneem and we don't have Noor El Tayeb on tour currently. But I just feel that the level that these ladies are playing, it's it's on a completely different scale. I think those four or five players, El Shabini, Narangoha, Hamami, Kamisam, and then maybe throw King into the mix. I don't really see much beyond that.
1: We're on the women's draw. I mean, taking a Team USA stance here, I mean, having seven players in this draw, it's making history. And four of them being seated in the top 20. I mean, what's your take on that?
2: Four of them also being sisters. You've got the Sobe sisters, Amanda and Sabrina. You've also got the Stefanoni sisters, Lucy and Marina, and I've seen Marina and Lucy grow up through the junior ranks, cruising their way really through the age groups, the two Stefanoni girls, and it's fantastic for them to have an opportunity to make history and compete in their first world champs. I mean, if you want to see pure freak athleticism, those two, the Stefanoni sisters have it in abundance. I did an area squad up in Boston a few years ago, and marina came along she was only 14 years of age at the time and she was competing and actually beating a lot of the under 19 boys at all the physical activities and we're talking about standing jump how high they can get up onto the board just standing jump how far they forward they can jump and a freak of nature is a bit harsh but their movement and their athleticism is something that i've not seen before if they can get the squash game on par with their movement and their uh, agility, then without a doubt, top 10 potential there for the, for the pair of them, because they're, they're both really good demeanor, great attitudes. And the fact that they're making history here in, in the States is, you know, kudos to them.
0: They are the future of U.S. squash. There's no question about it. But not to, you know, as I tend to do, throw a little cold water on all that. Is I, I, look at, I still look at noel Sherbini, and say when she, when she was their age, I think she had already won three junior championship world junior championships and was probably already a world champion by the age of 19. I think I could be mistaken, but when you look at that, it's just mind boggling. And again, Norel Sabini is an outlier. She she has had just an amazing career for someone for so young. But whenever I look at these young kids coming up be it from the United States or being from other countries and they say, "Well, she's only 21." I'm like, "Well, when Norel sherbini was 21, she was already like one of the most decorated players in the world." So, it
2: could be another a discussion for another time, but listen, you know, let's not forget the system that the Stefanoni sisters have had to come through. Uh, Shabini probably, I think she joined tour at about 14 or 15 years of age. It may have even been younger. I can't remember. It might have been 13, something ridiculous. The Stefanoni only goes over to go through the college process. Sorry, Lucy's going into college if she's not already, and Marina is going through it now. And hopefully, hopefully they'll turn pro when they not to put them under any pressure, because there's there is no pressure to do that, but there's certainly some potential there. But just the path. Through the, the whole schooling in America, it's a lot that makes that particular situation you're talking about with Shabini that much more difficult, Bill, doesn't it?
0: Absolutely, the case. It's it's hard to compare just because of what you're saying, for sure. But th- doesn't mean I can't just throw my controversial. No, no, comments I like it. Just, just, yeah, <laughs> that's why that's what I do. As Connor has pointed out, that very little I say on this podcast is based in fact or knowledge. It's just something <laughs> it comes to the top of my head and I throw it out there. And I'm it's like a magic eight ball of comments. It, it, we, we'll, get, we'll get into the, all the stuff that Connor cuts from this podcast. There'll be a, I think we'll call it the outtakes or we'll call it the uh, the very salient statements that I, and again, I'm not going to get into it because Connor told me not to. So I won't say that Connor in the last podcast cut the three best things I said. Continue on. Let's not lose track. Let's go, about, let's go on to the men's draw. The men's draw,
1: PJ, who,
2: who <laughs> are you taking?
0: <laughs> Connor, I'm so sorry. You told me not to bring this up and I, I I've
1: been holding my tongue for so long. I have no problem. What I was what I offered was to make a whole appendix about this and dive into them. I tried. I, I tried. We, we, we were
0: we're we yeah, we're you, like thirty get, minutes in and I held for thirty minutes yeah, and I, I could was, almost I, see the I restraint. I, I could have made it if PJ had a power I had a power outage. That's that was big of you, Bill. Um <laughs> all right go ahead sorry about that sorry don't want to derail this we're, we're going along smoothly and we want to we want to keep this timely and not ball. not drag it on so um, we'll, actually, let's I mean, get back I'm, to the men's i love how
1: bill derails the, the, the conversation and then says guys 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 we need to stay on track <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pay attention guys come on <laughs> guys come <laughs> attention. on
1: track. okay pj we're gonna turn it over to <laughs> you the men the Who you uh, taking the I mean, obviously <laughs> it's
2: <is> littered <laughs> with quality from from top to bottom so many talking points. You've got Ali Farag, who I know has been in Chicago for quite a bit of time since he left Cairo after the World. In By his standards, a disappointing World Series finals. But... Ali Farag is a very bright young man and I think everything that he's done leading into this World Championships would have had a reason behind it. So I think he may have used the World Series finals to get some games and some match play and some competitive squash into his body. And he'll probably go and hone in and learn and work on the things that he wasn't happy with in Cairo and put them to rest over in Chicago. With that said, you've got somebody, arguably one of the the hungriest players on the tour, still to this day chasing him for that world number one spot, and that's Mohamed El-Shabaghi. Those two now have got a fantastic rivalry that's really starting to blossom, challenging each other for that number one position. I'm still not 100% sure of the way the points work, and when Mohamed El-Shabaghi just going back to the World Series finals, El Shibagi did actually have an opportunity to become the world number one at the beginning of the July rankings. Because the tournament didn't turn out that way for him, he now has to wait that little bit longer. And I can't remember what situation is with Farag and him going into the Worlds. So it could come down to a case of whoever does better in the tournament, whoever finishes further, that's actually going to take that number one slot. So... There's so much to play for between, between those two guys. As I run through the draw, Connor, and we get down to it's the bottom quarter of the top half of the draw. And I'm just going to read some of these players out for you here. So you've got Marlon El Shabagi, who fortunately he's got a buy going through. Then you've got El Shabili, Dussor, Lopez, Mueller, Malotra, Marsh. Assal against Ibrahim in the first round. That's going to be an absolute tear-up between those two. It's going to be physical. It's going to be long. And it's going to be tough. Alan Klein plays Shah Jahan Khan. You've got Declan James against Solomon. Then Azim Khan against Tarek Moman. So not only has Mustafa Assal got to try and make his way through a tough Ibrahim early on, should they both get through, we're going to have another repeat of the semi-finals. Of the Tarek Moment and Mustafa Asal lineup, which, obviously, I mean the writing's on the wall. Sure, I mean that's got to take place. And then the good news is, if all goes to plan, the winner of that particular match between Asal and Moment will probably take on Marwan El Shibagi. Wow, that is a brutal, brutal quarter. So, as I said, just looking through the whole thing, it's just quality throughout. But in that bottom half of the draw. Paul Cole, I think he's gonna he's got a pretty good draw to make his way through to, to the semifinals. And then it'll depend on how El Shibagi sort of navigates his way through, whether those two could meet in a in a semi final, which again could be there's always a good battle up between those two. But Paul Cole had a very good World Series finals. I didn't feel it was his best squash per se I think there are some improvements he'll be looking to make during this time this break in between and if he can you know get back to some of the stuff that he was doing in the US open back in 2019 and starting to be a bit more creative and a bit more attacking i think he's now starting to get some confidence of reaching later stages of these tournaments and he's he's due a big win.
0: The two intriguing players for me are Farag, as always, because he is the number one player in the world. And as you said, he didn't look great in the World Series final. And you always wonder if that's like maybe he's not playing great and maybe he's just not fit enough or maybe he's not he's not ready for something like this. Or, as you said, he was just getting some matches in and he's priming himself for this. So I think he looked as bad as he's ever looked at the World Series final, I thought, anyways. And so that gave me a little pause, like, wow, is he ready for this? So he and uh, Diego Aliash. So Diego Elias, who has been yeah. basically a ghost on the tour, hasn't really participated in any of the events, even though he he could have. He did not play in the World Series final. He is seated eighth here, I believe. Talk to me about what you think his chances are. He's another one of those players who has been on the cusp. He definitely has the ability to make that leap. Is he ready for that? Has he been injured? Do you have any insights on on Diego Elias and where he's been and, and what his status is now?
2: I don't have any kind of inside knowledge as to where he's been or what he's been doing of late. But the points you make about Elias are all valid. Unbelievable natural ability. Terrific mover. And he'd been around for a little while. And we as pundits and fans had been waiting for this kind of explosion where he really did make his way kind of up into the top three, top four, that never really happened. And it was almost a bit sort of, because we see the, the potential in him, you know, when is this actually going to kick off? Because when it does, it's going to be fantastic, not only because of how good he is to watch, but also it's the player that throws the cat amongst the pigeons with the dominance of the Egyptians. So everybody really is willing Elias on, He's such a lovely guy off the court. He has been doing a lot of work with Jonathan Power since he was young, so that explains his court craft and his, and his tactical prowess. The big hole, I would say, for him in his game is, is just the physicality. It's so obvious when you watch how good he is and when he gets to the late stages of what lets him down. You're talking
0: fitness here, correct?
2: I'm talking fitness, agility, yeah. I mean, he reads the game, arguably the best on tour. He's up there with Ali as far as actually reading, anticipating, and in, in, in his court craft. He's up there with Ali. I'm talking purely about endurance and, and being able to last long matches and then back up the next day because he, he's had a few scalps in his career, but then unfortunately the body sort of let him down in the next round or so. I would love to see, I can't wait to see how he's playing because he's a dark horse and keeps himself very private. He loves a good time both, you know, on and off tour. So if he's been putting the hours in, I don't see any reason why he can't be a little bit of a a a bit of a shock.
0: I'd like to see him make a, a little run here. Pre-pandemic, he was training with and hanging around with Paul Call, who's one of the fittest players on tour, probably one of the fittest players ever to play squash. I thought that might be the impetus to push him over the edge and bring him because he'd look at Paul Call and say, hey, he has a lot more ability than Paul Call. But Paul Call has made a lot more out of his career so far than Diego Elias."
2: All players have their attributes and their, their facets and their own little, little strengths and weaknesses. I do know that during the, the pandemic, that Elias went and spent a little bit of time over with Gautier over in Prague. And I know that Elias was astonished at the dedication and the discipline and drive that he saw in Greg Gaultier to a point where he realized that this is a life very different to one that he had been living prior to spending that amount of time with Greg. So who knows whether he's seen that and it's sparked a bit of a reaction in Elias. I hope so. I really hope so because I just think he could be so bloody good. He is good, but I just think he could be so much better if he gets that aspect of his game uh, sorted out. And he would be great for the tour because he's such a great character.
0: He is. Uh, honestly, I, I've been thinking about it since Mustafa Stahl has uh, has kind of made his leap. The Assal-Diego Elias rivalry, it mm-hmm. could be, you know, because Diego yeah. Diego's still so young. He's got such a good personality. It's his social media. He, he doesn't thrive on social media like Mustafa does. Mustafa's really using using it to his advantage. But those two together really could could be like a marquee matchup along the lines of, you know, Shorbagi-Farag and Shorbagi-Rami and things such as that. So... I really hope for for the game's sake that he dedicates himself and and makes that leap. And one last thing before I turn it over to Connor is the one player, he is a former world champion, always overlooked, is Gawad. He's maybe slightly injured, but he's the one player who who throws a monkey wrench into every tournament. He could beat anybody. There's not a player on the tour he can't beat in any tournament. And I know he thrives, especially in Egypt. He may not play as well in the United States, but um he's always a force to be reckoned with and Honestly, he's one of my favorite players to watch, so I I always wanted to see him do well.
2: He was our favorite player on tour, is our favorite player on tour. He he took over the reins after Shabana unfortunately stood down. And you look at that week in 2015 where he put back-to-back performances together. We knew the capabilities on occasion of what he could produce, but what he did at the Wadi Degla Club when he was crowned world champion was – And it's a phrase and a term that we've used during commentary. He has that ability to play. He's unplayable. He becomes unplayable because he hits the perfect length with such a weight of shot that puts the opponent to such an extreme position deep in the back of the court, forces a weak opportunity and an opening, but then the finished product has also got that element of quality about it. And he he can put that together in spells in such a nonchalant and carefree attitude. The thing, though, with Gawad is, again, if, if he can get his body into the right shape and right mindset, I think one will work with the other. His mindset will be good if he knows he's put the hours and the work in. But Joey and I can tell as soon as Gowad steps on court what kind of a tournament he's going to have. And if he looks trim and he looks lean, then we know that he's put the work in and he's going to be a real threat. So, again, I would love to love him to repeat some of those performances, but we'll know pretty early on the tournament what kind of Good one that we're going
1: to see when he was on form back then um i mean it almost looked like he was going to be unstoppable for a period of time and and suddenly the torch was passed but with this tournament i think what adds another a huge element other than the sort of in your head that this is world championship that there's a full extra round of play which really then lends itself towards those people that have that the extra tank that have those legs that can really go the distance here because it's you're going to be tested every round here
2: there's obviously a lot of truth in, in that. Let's not forget, going back to the World Series Finals until the final, it was best of threes. So some of the matchups there, and I'm taking nothing away from Asal here at all because he thoroughly deserved the win. But that best of three format with the best of five final is a perfect format for him, totally, because of that physical aspect. And he and again he, he was awesome that week rightly crowned the World Series final champion. When you're coming into an extra round of best of fives, as you say, Connor, that reservoir of energy, that tank that you need coming into these kind of events needs to be pretty extensive. But also on the flip side of that, it's the ability that you've got to dismantle your opponents earlier on in the tournament quicker. So you keep that energy system as full as possible. There's a lot, lot to be said for that because if you want to use maybe a Paul Cole, for example, maybe a Joel Making, they're certainly improving that aspect of their game. But if they can be more clinical and get their opponents off earlier on in the tournaments, when they get to the later rounds, they're going to have more to offer. If not, if you're just purely relying on that physical aspect of the game to get yourself through those early rounds, when you come up against some quality opponents then you're going to really start to to struggle. So I feel that the early rounds in these events are they're, they're paramount. When you, when we look at the head to heads and we get the stats on the players and you see the players that have had less court time as you get into the quarter, semis, and finals, generally those ones with the lower court times are the ones that progress for that simple reason.
0: And, and what, one of the last players I'm going to mention before we we're going to close this out and get our predictions is um, making his return to the world, world stage after after losing his dad and. I saw Federer play the other day at at Wimbledon and, and lose in three straight sets and walk off the court and get the round of applause that he deserves for what he's done to the game. And we have James Woolstrop playing in the World Championships who knows when it's going to be his last world championship. This could be his last world championship. You, know, you never know. But it's so nice to have him back in the game. His dad, obviously, Malcolm, has passed recently. So I hope the fans there and the fans who are watching on Squash TV appreciate when he steps on court. And it would be so nice to see him win a couple matches. I'm not sure he's capable of going any further than that, but it would be really, really good for the sport. And he is such a good representation for squash. It would be great to see him make a little bit of a run. But either way, just nice to see him back on court.
2: Hats off to James for even playing in the event. I personally don't think I would would be able to. We would love to remember James for some of his classic and epic matches with your Gautier, your Matthews, your Shibaggies over the years and when he won the Tournament of Champions, when he was playing his, his best stuff back then. But you're 100% right. To be competing at the level that he's still playing at in the modern game at his age, it's completely, un, again, unprecedented. I don't remember anybody that's played at that level for so long. And his style of play, just his squash brain, his accuracy, his, his tactical nouse. I don't think we'll ever see again. And it's similar to what you're saying with Federer. So I agree with you entirely. It's it's brilliant that he's there and he will stay involved in the game. I know that much. But to see him compete you in, in possibly his last ever world champs, people need to just enjoy it as much as you possibly can because he's definitely going down as one of the greats, I would say.
1: Yeah, and he was already stateside here playing in Washington, D.C. at Squash on Fire, making it to the finals. Oh, yeah. He's uh, obviously
2: still competing. Yeah. Well... We're going to
1: close this out now, and it's it's interesting. We have to remember that this is all taking place during a, a global pandemic where from the organizing committee two and a half months ago, we actually weren't confirmed on the date and we weren't confirmed on the venue because we didn't know if we could have crowds, period, or of what level. So to be sitting here today talking through the draws, getting this level of excitement, it's exciting to hear and really a lot of great matchups. Part of it is also remembering that there is a whole engine behind making this work. Obviously the PSA tour and the players who are participating there, but the hosts of these, these host cities, which I think Chicago has distinguished itself by really helping elevate the sport and the Walter family for helping to fund a lot of the prize money to get to this level. But it's also made up of the University Club of Chicago and all of the patrons and fans here who are rallying behind to support it. There are tickets still available, but lots of ways to get engaged in this event, whether it's watching on Squash TV, you know, your YouTubes, uh, Facebook, all the other different ways. Um, but there are tickets available. Uh, if you go to worldsquashchamps.com.
0: Well, Connor, are you telling us that you're going to produce and turn this event around before I was expecting this not to come out to the U S open in like October. So are you telling us that this will be on the air before this tournament starts? Are, are you saying that can you, pred-
1: we're going to make predictions on this tournament, but the biggest prediction is this is, this is an element of like, you keep saying that, but we've been turning these around. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, they eventually hit the air for sure. 100%, you're correct. 100%, you're correct. So so you know what, Connor? I'm not going to cast to get you any longer. Let's move, let's go. You cut my best lines of the last podcast. I'm over that though. Just no, I'm not holding a grudge against you.
1: We could let the audience in on on the process that this goes through. And we've actually been hitting almost a five-day turnaround. If you'd like to correct the... No, no,
0: I I, I don't think that, you know, as they always say, the audience does not want to hear about the labor
1: pains. They just want to see <laughs> the baby. I'm okay. I'm also okay. Breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> I don't, I don't well. even know what that means. So
0: we'll go first and then you could, you could make the prediction. So I'm going to do the women's first. As always, I always pick Norrell Shorbini to win. I still think she's the best player in the world. I think she is um, on her best day. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's beatable. So, if she plays her best squash, I don't think she can be beat. So, I, I do say uh, I'm going to pick el Sherbini on the woman's side. On the men's side, a little tougher. I think that Mohamed Al Sherbagi has been aiming for this. This is what he's been gearing up for. He's been gearing up to win the world championship and and basically be able to step on the podium and say I am the whether whether it gives him the world number one ranking or not, I don't know. But to step on the podium and say I am the best player in the world. And I think this is the moment and this is his moment. So I'm gonna think I'm gonna say Mohamed Al Sherbagi is going to win the men's side. So I have Sherbini
1: and Sherbagi. Yeah, you know, if you're looking at the sort of the betting book there, it's hard to really go against those two, I think. I'm gonna defer to that as well. Wait! 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 To <laughs> take a stand, Connor. Well done. Remember when we were saying like we we didn't want to put people on the spot to say who's going to win it. Well, we did. If he's not announcing it, so he's
0: not. <laughs> that's the difference. So, so we don't have to. We don't have to cut this because I agree. If, if PJ was announcing it and it was actually doing it, I would not okay, ask him to predict the right. winner. I would definitely I mean, I would it's, definitely it's not. It's a lose lose for I, me like anyway said,
2: because I'm sure some of the players will be uh, listening into this and I, and wh- whoever I pick, I've always gonna, I'm always going to I'm going to upset somebody.
0: Racist and biased, uh, Paul Johnson. That's the two words I think of.
2: I'm going to agree with you on the El Shabini front. As I, as we discussed earlier on in the show, I just feel that the ability that she has to produce the goods in these big events and the experience will be just a little bit too much. I do, however, predict a humdinger of a final in the ladies' event. I've I got a feeling that Gohar is going to be confident from the World Series, and I think Shabini will be playing well enough to get her way through, and I think those two are going to have a... They're going to go at it, and I think it's going to be a, a, a really good final. Men's, I'm not so sure how this one's going to pan out. I I will pretty much guarantee an Egyptian victory. (laughs) Um, It's going to be between, I feel, Farag and Shabagi. My question is which one? Uh, Because I think Marwan, he's going to have the bit between his teeth and he's going to have a point to prove going into Chicago. I think he found some good form when he won the World Series recently and he has been working hard on his physical side of the game, which again was his Achilles heel and he's due a big win and I think he's been playing some of the best squash on tour over the last eight, ten months. So I think it's going to be Ali and then if if he does come up against Marwan, let's say in the final, he's got a great record against uh, Ali and he can get into Farag's head he always does. Don't write off Marwan el Shabagi. Mohammed and Marwan played in the World... Uh, sorry, in the, I think it was British Open final back in... Was it 2017? And Marwan wasn't quite ready to take that. And it didn't quite hit the heights that we were hoping for. Marwan is a different player today than he was in that final. And Shabagi is as hungry as ever. If those two do manage to get through and play against each other... As I predicted in the women's final, I think that could be an absolute belter because they're the closest of brothers and they love love each other dearly. But when that door closes, gloves are off.
0: Right before we go, PJ, and this this will happen before this gets put on the air unless Connor puts in a superhuman effort, which which is possible. It's um, always done. Come on, England, England, Italy. Euro finals, your English team has made it to the final. Um, They're trying to bring it home as the anthem goes. Do you feel confident in the game? And so right now, when this comes out, you could be celebrating right now or you could have your tail between your legs. What what do you think is going to happen?
2: More often than not, my tail ends up between my legs, but I've got a feeling on this one, I think it is coming home. I think the performances that our manager has produced throughout the tournament, it's not always pleasing to the eye, but he's tactical knowledge and how he sets our team up, finds a way of getting the job done.
0: I'm looking forward to the game. I I look forward to the shots in the audience because (laughs) no, no offense, PJ, but dude, the shots of the English fans, there are some, there's some ugly looking English fans out there. They they are not As a whole, you're not an attractive people. I'm not speaking to you personally, but but they they show the Italians, the Italian fans in the stands, and there's like beautiful women, good looking guys with good hair, cut figure. They show these English fans in there, and they're just big fat people with like the whitest skin ever, like drunk as could be. It's just so funny to look at.
2: Just very quickly, back in 1998, I was still competing on tour, for quite a funny story, 1998, and I think the it was either the Euros or the World Cup. I think it was the World Cup was being held in France at the time. I was travelling through France on my way back to the UK and I had to go via Paris, and it was the opening day of the World Cup, and two of the teams that were playing, I'm not sure if it was even in the first, first group stage or in – I'll have to check the records – I just remember seeing all of these Brazilian soccer shirts, which still to this day, they're iconic and they're super cool. The, you know, the yellow with a little bit of green on them. And you had all of these kind of Brazilian fans walking around. And then you had all the French fans also walking around, immaculately decked out, looking super cool, you know, good looking, tan, all very well put together. And then England, England were playing... And all it was were these, like, big, fat, <laughs> I mean, you know, these overweight guys throwing beer around, making so much food. I mean, I was so embarrassed at you know, I mean, on that particular day. I just saw put my sunglasses on. But the difference in the quality of the fans, it was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, it, you know,
1: it is so it is, is this so you funny. and you and Bill actually agreeing? Is this, is this what I'm hearing?
2: I mean, I'm going to have to wow. agree, yeah. I mean, all these Brazilian dudes with the slick back hair and these beautiful oh, yeah. and these, you know... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I feel bad for the- did not not step up to the plate that day I, I remember you
0: know you know they want to show like all right mm, guys. Very, very true all right guys that was awesome pj thank you so much um thanks for your insight we appreciate you doing this we are really looking forward to this tournament no matter what time of year it is
2: well champs always throws up results that people can't uh, ever figure out you need a little bit of luck along the way things to kind of Go in your favor. So that your star, you need to be playing well, you know, feeling good, and your stars need to be aligned that week because there's so many contributing factors to to what comes out at the end of the week. But I can safely say it's going to be a hell of a week of squash.
0: Well said. Connor, enjoy yourself in Chicago. We look forward to getting back on the air uh, after it's over, getting a little, uh, little insight of what it was like to be on the ground. So looking forward to it. And everyone, uh, see you next show. Hey, quick time out
1: to hear a word from our sponsor.
0: Baya Sports Shoes are designed for racket sport players by racket sports players with the knowledge that if a shoe can withstand the rigors of squash, then it will have no problem holding up for any other indoor court sport. No matter what your sport, the Baya Force X is the performance shoe of choice for competition at the highest level.
1: So it would mean a lot if you go to biasports.us. That's B-I-A sports with an S dot Check out their website. But even better, take their new Bia Force X for a test drive.